The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Good morning, all. Thank you for embarrassing me by turning out in such large numbers. <laughs> um, I know most of you have really sharp powers of observation and have noticed that I am not Mark Nunberg. <laughs> He is, at this moment, I think, driving down from Duluth after a wedding yesterday. And as he was desperately dredging the bottom of the barrel, he found me cowering in a corner. So I said, I'll follow the leader. Here I am. Um, So um, my name is Ramesh Sairam. I have been uh, coming to Common Ground since about 2006. Um, I... My other role is I do the uh, mindfulness and chronic pain workshop here every quarter. I just recently started working with the teens, the teen group. And this is the next step, apparently. Um, so, uh, of course, two days was not enough to uh, prepare a talk, let alone get over my anxiety about giving the talk. Um, so I thought I'd share with you something that I've been uh, working on this spring and summer, and that's a work in progress for the rest of the year, I suppose. And this was um, an exploration about uh, what is content. Um, A couple of things occurred that really brought this to the forefront for me. Uh, One was, um, I don't do a lot of metta practice. I just don't have the wiring to do that. But uh, one, when I do try it, one of my phrases that I use is, um, may I be content? Uh, Which is a sense of, can I be okay with things as they are? Uh, most of the time I'm not, and that's why the aspiration. Um, then I, I, I ride the scooter in the summer. I live in St. Paul, and uh, a couple of weeks ago I was coming here to Common Ground, and it was the perfect day. It was about 72, 72 degrees, blue skies, a couple of wispy clouds, you know, fresh greenery on the trees, and, um, you know, just a gentle breeze. And I had just come to a stop at a traffic sign, And I was doing the same thing that I've done for 20 years, watching the other lights to see when they're going to turn red so that I can get going. And, you know, it just occurred. It was like a dope slap that through the long winter, (laughs) I was waiting for that moment. You know, the long, dreary winter. When can I get on my scooter? The 72 degrees in my shorts, sandals, everything. All the conditions were there for me to be completely at Nirvana. And all my mind could think of was, when will the light turn green so that I can go? And so the settling in came in, as in, and as I looked at my body, it was leading forward. I wasn't sitting on this gentle, supportive cushion. So therein started the exploration of just having an aspiration, may I be content. I have to figure out what is it about now that is making me discontent. So um, so then this opportunity for this talk came up. So I had been collecting notes and doing some reading in a random manner. So I just put it all together. And hopefully there is some coherence to what I'm about to say. But um, just a continuation of the meditation, if as you hear me droning along and, yeah, da-da, and you feel impatience or frustration creeping up, go back to your body and see what is it about this annoying guy's voice or his accent or what he's saying that is creating a sense of discontent. And may I tolerate him. 
for another 20 minutes. Some of you who've been practicing for a while, as you go through the pain of listening to me drone on and on, may even attain arhanship at the end of 30 minutes, if you can really stay with the discontent. So, so one definition of um, contentment could be the satisfaction of achieving a goal. And it could be, often it's materialistic, um, but sometimes it's just like my scooter incident. Through the summer, I thought I'd be content if I read June and I could be in that setting. Uh, clearly, it doesn't work. But often we define contentment as if only I can get a certain job, if I can get my kid, kid through, uh, through college or whatever. We, we see contentment as a state somewhere out there. And once we achieve it, then we're there. Unfortunately, as you reflect on your life, you will find that there have been so many thousands of moments of contentment that have come and gone. And once you reach that state, your mind is looking for the next level of contentment. And the, tragically, again, going back to my scooter incident, when I have an opportunity to feel some contentment, I'm missing, missing it already because my mind is already on to something else. The other one, again, it comes... Um, little materialistically, but also uh, it's a state of mind, which is which equates contentment with safety, stability, and security. And, you know, we in the West right now, especially compared to what's happening in Iraq or Syria or Turkey, we have all the ingredients for contentment. But we can even create the story that I can't be content now because of what's happening out there. The two are not really connected. You can be concerned about what's happening out there while still retaining a sense of allowing what's happening right now. And also, as you know, one of the three characteristics that the Buddha taught us about, impermanence unfortunately comes in and disturbs any sense of safety, security, and stability beyond a few days or a few months. Something will happen in your life that will disrupt this. So contentment can't, again, again, can't be related to a fixed state of stability. The other thing is um, a state of innocence and openness, unsullied by um, intellectual processes, comparisons, etc. Um, and and with the image that comes to mind is that of a child that's playing. You know, sheer innocence, living in the moment, and it just is able to enjoy the day, the hour, the moment completely unsullied by, well, this is not as good as that, or this is not as good as what I'm going to be. And so they seem to be able, they seem to be more open to really accepting things as they are. But I'm not sure if that is entirely true. Uh, when I saw my two-year-old nephews, uh, twins, one of them is a red freak, another one is a blue freak in terms of color. And so they both got trains that were almost identical, just some minor differences, one blue and one red for their second birthday. The red guy, maybe something to do with the color, wanted the blue train. I mean, you could, you could see him make the comparisons, even at the age of two. I have no idea if it was a kind of a thought-out logical comparison, but somehow his train was not as good as his brother's blue train. And there was a fight that ensued very quickly. So even the innocence of children may be a little conditional. And then the final state of contentment is what um, uh, Christina Wellman, a, a, a 
a Dharma teacher in England calls bovine contentment. <laughs> that's the image. She's English, so she has the image of this countryside, and there's this cow that's filled its stomach with uh, grass and is sitting there chewing cud contentedly. I don't think I can settle for that. I mean, <laughs> I'm a psychiatrist. I can think of medications I can take to achieve that state, but that's not contentment. <laughs> so, so, so in my mind then came up certain questions. So these are all, and so I'm not here to offer any advice. It's more a process that I'm going through, and hopefully, um, you know, something resonates with you, and maybe we can have another discussion down the line. So one is, um, I'm a grumpy guy. I mean, people have told me I'm not a fun guy. Um, so is it genetic? There have been excellent studies that have been done that, is, that have shown that there are some people who, unfortunately, given their wiring and genetic makeup, have a, threshold, have a ceiling to how much happiness they can feel. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate. And then there are other people who can feel happy even under you know, unfortunate circumstances. And so there is some kind of genetic part. Um, but then the question, so there's a wonderful book uh, called The Happiness Hypothesis. So if you folks want to read that. And in fact, this morning I was woken up um, on NPR by, uh, so the show called, a program called On Being. Which is so she interviewed Jonathan Haidt. So I think he's written a new book, and his first book was um, The Happiness Hypothesis. So, and he, in fact, uh, the book is about blending uh, Western psychology and research on Western psychology with uh, some of the spiritual practices. And so he, there's a whole chapter on the genetic aspects of happiness. Um, the other thing that we talked about is, you know, contentment is something that a state that we can aspire to. And so the materialistic view would be, I do this, 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 and this, and I'll get there, and I'll be content. I have concluded that that is not, not true. I mean, I, life has been extremely uh, kind to me for the most part, and I ought, to be, I ought to have attained nirvana at least six times by now. So not going there. The other is spiritual view is more about it's a process. It's not, it's not even a state or a destination, but it's a moment-by-moment -moment cultivation through a process of certain practices and aspiration, but without a definition. The thing is, as soon as we define what contentment is, we've already predicted what it will be. Contentment, like um, letting go, is something that you know that you've let go only when you reach there. And somebody else's definition of contentment won't work for you. And that's why comparison comes in the way. And so it's, this, this is the part spiritual aspect of, of contentment that resonates with me is that it's an active, lively process. And then the big question is, is contentment always contingent on external circumstances or is it independent of external circumstances? I'm still waiting for an answer. Because the life is conditioned towards external circumstances. It's, I'm 48 years old. I have 45 years of if only, if only, if only thinking. I can't just pretend that, oh, I don't care about what's happening out there. I'm just going to do navel gazing and find contentment here. No, I'll find a state of complete absence, complete disconnection from the world outside, and it will be more like emotional numbing rather than contentment. So that's the kind of 
uh, kind of pitfall of really focusing actively on am I content, I want to be content, is that you can create a false notion of contentment based on your preconceived ideas. So this is the part of you can aspire to contentment, but then be comfortable with not knowing what it will be like. Hopefully one day we'll find out. Is contentment the same as equanimity? Are you all familiar with the term equanimity? So when I ask this question, especially juxtaposed to the other previous question of does contentment, is contentment contingent on externality? So if things are going well, then oh, it's easy to be content. But if things are not going well, does it automatically mean that I can't be content? Can one be content with pain? Can one be content with grief? I, initially my thought was, no, you, you know, it's impossible. So equanimity is different from contentment. But then um, in the happiness hypothesis, there's a chapter that uh, Jonathan Haidt starts off with. He describes two people, two gentlemen. One was a man who was... Um, in Chicago at the turn of the last century. Uh, he was arrested for being a you know, labor movement leader or something, and he was sentenced to hanging. And as he went up to the scaffold, he said, this is the happiest day of my life. And he was hung for, uh, for whatever crimes he committed. And his life story was appalling. I mean, you just have to read it. He didn't have one moment of peace or happiness throughout his short life. But... When he was facing his death, he said, this is the happiest moment of my life. The other contrast was um, Mr. Kodak in Massachusetts, so somewhere in New England, the gentleman who found the Kodak company. I mean, incredible, and, and it kind of came from a very wealthy background. Of course, he was a successful entrepreneur, created one of the biggest companies in the world, multimillionaire, philanthropist, charitable gentleman. Anyway, he, he had the most perfect life. Eastman, sorry, yeah, George Eastman, I think. And one fine day, I think at the age of 70, he sat at his desk, um, had a I think, glass of wine, had his last cigar, wrote a note saying, I think my job is done, put a gun in his head and shot himself. So which man was content with his life at the point of death? And then I thought about soldiers who give up their lives for their colleagues or martyrs to any kind of religion. Those folks went, go through a lot of suffering before they martyrdom, they achieve martyrdom. Where they, can we say that they weren't truly content at that point? Again, I don't have an answer. But again, brought up questions about if I keep on equating contentment with relaxation, peace, and ease, am I missing out on the big chunk of my life, like traffic lights not turning red? check out lines in grocery stores being longer than what I want them to be, etc. And for you folks, me droning on and on. <laughs> is that, so can you be content with this? And what is contentment? So then it now seems to me that contentment may just be another word for equanimity. And since we know that equanimity is something that can only be, that can be cultivated, you can't willingly be equanimous, Maybe contentment is one of those things where you create the right conditions and like equanimity, contentment will gradually arise.
Then the question arose as I looked around my own life and then looked at people who achieved a lot in life. <coughs> Is a sense of discontentment essential for progress? <coughs> if everyone is satisfied with their station in life, <coughs> will there ever be any progress? If Steve Jobs had not found the discman tedious and heavy to carry, would we have an iPod? <clears throat> and if he had not found this carrying an iPod and a cell phone separately to be too much, would we have had an iPhone? And so on. I'm not sure. <clears throat> if, if we look at contentment, in the bovine contentment mode, of course, we'll all just be eating grass and chewing cud and pooping at the other end. <laughs> but that's not as humans. We have the frontal lobe. We have the intellectual capacity. So I think it's wired into us to be questioning the judgment, the comparisons. Those are all, I think, inevitable for many of us. But I don't think discontentment equates fruitful achievements. Again, my own life is full of examples. I rail against the healthcare system and politicians. And I have a lot of discontent that leads to nothing except just gossip. It's just useless. But I can't help it. You know, I have an opinion about people. <coughs> and so, so there is a useful level of discontentment, and then there is this completely useless level of discontentment. So can we start watching ourselves and see, detect the two patterns. And that's, that's where I found coming back to the body so helpful. Because um, one, one discontentment I find very often when I sit down to meditation at home is that that email that can be sent on Monday somehow has to be sent during the next 30 minutes. It, it, it has to be sent. And even though the intellect says, no, there's no reason for a Sunday morning to send that email that can go on Monday, there is this levitation that's taking place. And it's not a nirvana levitation. It's that, you know, that I have to send it. Any future-oriented plan creates a sense of energy in our body that tries to lift us, totally unnecessary waste of muscular energy, and comes in the way of us trying to be content or at least settle down. So that's where I found that contentment practice Again, it's not a mind practice as much as recognizing what the mind's doing and quickly come back to the body because discontent is felt here. Because when I'm feeling a little discontent with what's happening and my next stop is DQ, it's that it's all in the body. That I turn left into DQ as opposed to going straight because of this discontent. That thinks that, oh, that blizzard's going to really get me there. Well, it has. So... So what's the connection between um, contentment, contemplation, and mindfulness practice? 
So this is what I um, have concluded, and I am kind of processing when I try to sit. To me, discontentment is just another word for dukkha, or as we say here, dukkha. I can't say dukkha, I have to say dukkha. So, it's, uh, you know, we, call, we, use, we say dukkha is suffering, but that's just too big. For most of us in the West, lives are incredibly fortunate. We may not be in the 1% in America, but we definitely are in the 0.1% of the entire world. I mean, that's one, it's 7 billion people. And our quality of life, what we have here, we are in the 0.1% of the entire planet. We have a lot to be content for. But there is this undercurrent of discontent. But it's not suffering. It's uneasiness. I read the paper about what's happening in Iraq. Yeah, I, I'm uneasy. But then I can stay with that as opposed to jumping on about what Bush did or Obama did. and That's all unnecessary stories. If I can use that energy of discontent to maybe write some letters, start a campaign, help the veterans, that's something else. But most of the time I find all I do is sit and stew. So that's Dukkha. So that's the first connection between discontent and our practice, the very first noble truth. The other thing, this I think I'm fairly certain of, contentment can only be in the now. I've had 40 years of looking for contentment in the future. After losing my hair, there's no further contentment. So, <laughs> you know, I'd better settle for the now, because in the future it's down the <laughs> so, No, that's pessimistic, though. I, I'm, this is... <laughs> so. Yeah, I have to know, what is it about this moment that is not acceptable, that the mind has to make a plan for half an hour from now on Lake Street and DQ. I may still go there, but I need to know what is it about this moment that is so bad. Because if this wonderful setting doesn't engender a sense of peace and ease for me, that is not going to, because after the couple of bites, I'm going to be beating myself down for being, not having self in willpower. The other thing that I also believe is that, like the other Brahma-viharas, loving-kindness, generosity, um, sympathetic joy, this is one of those that is a state to be cultivated as an aspiration over your lifetime. And like, as they say about golf, I don't play golf, but apparently there's nothing called perfection in golf, unless you hit all, whatever, 18 holes and one. You can keep on improving. So same here. And therein lies the kind of energy as well, is that I don't have to settle for it. I can keep on exploring what else is going on. And because the other big part of my practice is chronic pain and really looking, studying the body, what I have found is every time I reach a level where I think, oh, I've understood one area of body where I hold tension, and my sensitivity goes up, I find another cluster of muscles where I'm holding tension and then another, and another. It's four years down the line, and I'm still discovering patterns of tension in my body. And so that gives me, actually, it gives me more energy and inspiration to discover what else is going on, and all these stories that my mind creates to dupe me into thinking, if you just do this, you'll be content. 
unfortunately what it's doing is fueling its own habit patterns. And then the, the troubling relationship between contentment and mindfulness. It's the chicken and egg. If I'm not content, and again, the, here I'm defining contentment as a sense of ease with the way things are, I find it very difficult to be mindful. My mind is restless. It's wanting to be somewhere else. But if I haven't cultivated some practice of mindfulness, I can't bring my mind to study what is it about now that I'm discontented about. And therein lies again, okay, I'll do some samatha practice and develop some concentration and then I'll study contentment doesn't work. Or I'll just try to be content with everything or I'll create my circumstances so that there'll be nothing that can come in the way of my samatha practice, then I'll really get down to it. Life doesn't offer those either hopes. And I think it is possible to do both. And again, it comes back to awareness of every time your mind jumps off, comes up with stories and excuses. Um, are you present enough to be aware of what it's doing. And what I find is that coming back to the present is easier if I have something nice for the mind to come back to. And hence, for the last year, year and a half, I have been trying to create a sense of ease in my body because my mind finds it easier to come back to a sense of relaxation, which is a little positive, as opposed to something that's neutral like the breath. But eventually, I want to blend both as well. So I'll finish with a couple of quotes and then maybe leave um, five minutes, six minutes for questions. So this one was from the Dalai Lama. The problem with most, I'm paraphrasing him here, the problem with most of us is that we are discontented with what we have and content with our meditation practice. It would be better for us to be content with what we have and not be content with our meditation practice. And this speaks to the materialistic aspects of contentment um, by Socrates. He who is not content with what he has would not be content with what he would like to have. I will close with those two statements. Please. Six five one two four one five nine five nine. That's my clinic number. If you believe in rebirth, do all the right things to be born as a cow in England. England specifically. Please.
So if I'm hearing your question correctly, is that we give, at least to some extent, in accordance with what we receive or what we have. What I find is that I don't even realize how much I have. In moments, I can look back at you know, India or Iraq or other places or even you know, poverty here in America. And in comparison, I feel, oh, I should be grateful. But that's an intellectual concept of gratitude, gratefulness. Again, it's like the Brahma Viharas. These are not concepts. These are not intellectual notions of I ought to. Or, you cannot think through to contentment or gratitude. It's something we are so deeply conditioned to believing that we, we can't be satisfied with what we have. That it, it's something you, all you can do is be mindful of the fact that you, we don't perceive all the opportunities for contentment in our daily life, every moment. And so all you can do is create the setting, the aspiration to become aware moment by moment. That to see the, the, the opportunities for contentment, which will then allow you to open. Because one of the ways of looking at contentment is allowing things to be as they are. And as soon as we come up with a story, it stops life from being what it is. Sorry, Danny. Sorry, I don't know if I answered that question, but, but to me it's that, like the question of what is nirvana, it, it, for me, I, for my practice, I've decided that it's, it's, anytime I think about it as a concept, it's just a concept. It's an answer that my mind will come up with an answer based on its own knowledge and conditioning. And it takes me, takes me away from what's going on right now. So at that traffic light when I'm paused, not only was I not recognizing all the kind of environmental conditions that could give me contentment, but also I know that chaotic traffic in India where you know, folks don't follow rules, I ought to be content that I'm in a place where rules are followed. But it's, that's still, again, at an intellectual level. It's something that has to seep in, and you do it over and over again, like method practice. Eventually, you'll have a sense of loving kindness or peace and contentment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And, and that's, and we are, I'm assuming most of us can endorse what you're going through. And each of us has our own stories of discontentment. So, and that's the thing is that I just gave just a couple of examples from my life. If you had a whole day, I could give you a whole day worth of examples. <laughs> uh, but it's that, but as soon as we ask the question, why am I discontent? We're looking for intellectual answers. And so the thing that's working for me is recognize the discontent and come back to what is discontentment. And so again, and the mind will again try to come up with because of this, 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 but come back and come back to not just my body. Body is helpful because I can then settle back. I can release some of the tension, but then it allows me to see the emotional. Because there are fears, usually it's fear, anxiety. Um, it, those are the things that underlie a sense of discontent. And if you want to make connection to objects out there, it'll just perpetuate the same process. And then letting go is another process. It's, you cannot actively let go. Same way we cannot actively relax. It's first you and then so. have identified our sense of contentment with a car or a house or a career. Last question, I think. Okay, let's just uh, unwind for a couple of minutes. See if you can recapture that sense of ease that you may have cultivated a while ago. Maybe just some faint remnants. Along with the gentle aspiration to be at ease and to allow the conditions of life to be the way they are. 
not just when you're sitting, but at home, at work, in your car, and especially in your interaction with people who may not entirely agree with your view on life. May the benefits of our practice support the development of ease and peace in all beings everywhere. May everyone be free from suffering. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.